Saints for Home and School, 4. St. Rose of Lima, 1586-1617, The Pearl of the Andes, Feast, August 30th. The pupils of Miss Desmond's class in St. Francis School had just finished studying the geography of South America. Tomorrow, said the teacher, at three o'clock, Isabel Anderson will have a good story for you. It will be about one of the South American countries. The pupils clapped their hands when they heard this, for they liked Isabel and always enjoyed listening to her speeches. Next day, when the time came for the geography lesson, Isabel went to the front of the room. My story, she began, is about a beautiful girl who was born in 1586 at Lima, the capital of Peru. She lived just 31 years, a short life to be sure, but full of golden deeds and very pleasing in the sight of God. Would you like to know her name? It was Rose Flores, the first saint of the American cont continents. What a great honor for Peru to be the country where this first flower of holiness lived. It was only 52 years after Spain conquered Peru that St. Rose was born. When Jacques Cartier was sailing up our own St. Lawrence River in 1534, the Spanish soldiers were taking possession of Peru. So you see that South American Republic is the same age as Canada. In 1535, the city of Lima was founded. As you know, it is built on the western foothills of the Andes Mountains and is about nine miles from the Pacific Ocean. The first stone of its beautiful cathedral was laid by Francisco Pizarro in 1535, but the building was not completed until 1625, 90 years later. No doubt, little flower Flores often saw the workmen placing the heavy stones in the arches. Perhaps she sometimes watched the artists as they painted beautiful pictures on the walls. It may be that she saw the stained glass windows being placed in the position. The work on the cathedral lasted not only for the whole of her life, but was not finished until eight years after her death. Miss Desmond now spoke. Do you know, class, why I chose Isabel Anderson to tell this story? No, Miss Desmond, the pupil said. It is because St. Rose of Lima was called Isabel at her baptism, the teacher replied. Yes, Miss Desmond, continued Isabel. She was baptized under the same name as I have. But as the little girl lay in the cradle, her parents thought her tiny face resembled a flower. So the family called her Rose. The Archbishop of Lima granted permission for the change and later allowed the child to take the new name in confirmation. The Blessed Virgin herself appeared to her one day and said, Your name is very pleasing to my divine son and to me. I shall allow you to add my name to it. After that, she was called Rose of St. Mary. One of the things which made the little girl pleasing to Jesus and his blessed mother was her strict obedience to her parents and superiors. A word, a look, or even a wish from someone in charge of her was enough for Rose. She did even the hardest tasks without the slightest delay, and always with a happy smile. Very often she did not wait to be asked. She made it a point to do little things she knew would be pleasing to others. 
Madame Flores was proud of her young daughter's good looks, and wished her to dress in beautiful clothes. But Rose would reply, Mother, remember only beauty of the soul is worth while. One day the girl was told to wear a garland of flowers in her hair. She could not refuse this request, but she thought of our Lord's crown of thorns, and she placed under the flowers a piece of sharp metal. The discomfort it caused would protect her from vanity. Whenever she went to confession, she followed the priest's advice very strictly. She knew our Lord would bless her for being obedient, not only to her parents, but also to her superiors. What did the people of Lima think of her? Miss Desmond asked. They admired her very much, Isabel replied. She was beautiful, most beautiful than most girls in the city. Her manners were very sweet and attractive. She was pleasant in conversation and always asked a worthwhile things. She was very clever. She knew how to study. Such good qualities were well known to the people of Lima, and they often praised her. Rose, however, was afraid of being praised, so she guarded herself against vanity and pride by doing penance. In fact, her desire to suffer grew stronger and stronger every day. Just then, Sister Frances Regis, principal of the school, came in. The pupils stood up. Don't let me interrupt the lesson, Miss Desmond, she said. Isabel Anderson is telling us about St. Rose of Lima, the teacher replied. Oh, I shall be glad to hear you, Isabel, said the sister. Go right on. I was just going to tell about St. Rose's sacrifices, sister. A noble and wealthy young man of Lima wished to marry her. He offered her a beautiful home and many servants. He even promised to share some of the wealth with her and her parents. No doubt this offer appeared attractive to Rose, as it would be to most young girls. But the saint had promised to serve God by remaining single and living for him alone. Therefore she refused the young man's offer of marriage. What did her parents think of that? asked Sister Frances Regis. They treated her very unkindly, Isabel answered. They called her a fool for throwing away such a good offer, and they made life miserable for her. What did she do then? Miss Desmond inquired. She continued her prayers and penances, answered Isabel. Besides her parents having lost their money, Rose went out every day to work at night and did much fine sewing. The people of the town bought all the beautiful things she made. Thus she earned enough to keep the house going. Could you do that, Isabel? Sister Frances asked. I'm afraid not, sister, answered Isabel with a smile. I can't sew like St. Rose could. As she wished to help her parents by keeping up her needlework, the saint did not go to a convent, but joined the third order of St. Dominic instead. They permitted her to remain at home. St. Catherine of Siena, whom St. Rose wished to imitate, had also worn the white robe of St. Dominic. How happy Rose was when she had made her choice! Yet how humble she was! I am not worthy to wear this pure white habit, she exclaimed. But the Blessed Virgin, in a vision, told her that Jesus wished her to wear it all her life. If I were to tell you all of St. Rose's penances, you would wonder how anyone could go through so much suffering. 
She ate scarcely enough to keep herself alive, and she endured a great deal of pain. Besides that, she went to the hospitals and nursed the sick. She visited poor homes and fed starving people. Her suffering and charity she offered to God for sinners. Our Lord often appeared to her in the form of a little child to tell her how pleased he was with her good deeds. Yet she was not always favored with beautiful visions. Often she had to fight terrible temptations sent by the devil himself. The devil was full of hatred for her because of her good works in saving souls. But Rose, who never failed to put on the armor of prayer, was able to beat off these attacks of the enemy. One of his attacks consisted in making her feel very sleepy when it was time to get up. As a guard against this, she called for help from the Blessed Virgin Mary, who often came to awake her in the morning. Once the Holy Mother said to her, My child, you must arise at once and not be slothful. Now I am near the end of my story, said Isabel. I have told you how St. Rose's life was spent. When death at last came to claim her, she was happy to die, so that she might enjoy forever those beautiful visions of our Lord had given her on earth. She passed peacefully away in August 1617, when she was only 31 years of age. At her funeral, all Lima was in mourning. Crowds packed the streets, senators, generals, judges, and many other important men of Peru, took turns in carrying her holy remains to the church. The highest honors were given her by the people of the city. After she was canonized in 1671, she was declared the patron saint of Lima, and every year the people of the city keep her feast day on August 30th. The whole world now honors her as the first flower of the Americas. Isabel had finished her speech, as she took her seat, the pupils clapped their hands. Sister Frances Regis rose from her chair. Isabel, I enjoyed your account of St. Rose. I know Miss Desmond and the pupils did too. I'll be back again some day to hear another story, she said, as she left the room. St. Thomas Aquinas, 1226-1274 Doctor of the Church and Patron of Schools Feast is March 7th. St. Thomas belonged to a noble family of southern Italy, the son of Count Lundolf and Countess Theodora. He was born near the village of Aquino in 1226. As his parents were wealthy, Thomas might have lived in luxury and ease, but he did not desire these things. He loved God so much that he put aside the pleasure of the world and followed Christ in poverty and labor. God blessed his choice and made him a great saint. On account of his wonderful writings and holy life, he is called the Angelic Doctor. His books are studied in Catholic universities and colleges. In 1880, Pope Leo XIII made him the patron of all Catholic schools. Many classes invoke his help every day by saying, St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. Thomas was born in the castle of Rocca Secca near Aquino. When he was a baby, a thunderbolt struck the fortress and killed his nurse and his little sister. Ever after that, it is said he had a great fear of lightning. He would go to church during a storm and would even lay his head against the tabernacle to beg our Lord's protection. 
His parents often gave him books that always pleased him. He would sit quietly on the floor and turn over the pages with the greatest delight. When he was five years old, he started to school. His first teachers were the Benedictine monks of Monte Cassino. He was a serious little boy and often asked his masters some hard questions. One day he said to one of his teachers, Master, tell me, what is God? Even in his tender years, his thoughts were in heaven. He was ready for college when he was only ten years of age. His master sent him home for a holiday with his parents at Loretto. There he spent his time helping to feed the poor. When the holiday was over, Thomas was sent to the University of Naples. There he met a holy Dominican friar who said to him, God has given you to our order. Thomas threw himself on his knees and replied, It has always been my greatest desire to be a Dominican, but I fear I am unworthy of such great a favor. He was admitted by the monks and shortly afterwards put on their holy habit. His parents were not pleased with him for joining the Dominicans. They took him home by force and locked him in a tower of the castle. In this prison, Thomas had to stay for more than a year and had to suffer much from hunger and cold. But these hardships did not make him change his mind. He spent most of his time in prayer and study. Through kindness of his sister, he received some books. One of these was the Bible, which he memorized from cover to cover. In addition, he learned by heart five books of theology and even found time to do considerable writing. As time went on, the family saw that suffering would not make Thomas change his mind. His brothers decided to try another plan. They put in his way a terrible temptation against holy purity. Thomas prayed earnestly to God for strength and was saved from sin. He then begged our Lord for the grace of perpetual chastity. In answer to his prayer, two angels appeared and tied a miraculous cord about his waist so tightly that he gave a cry of pain. His guards rushed in to find out what had happened, but Thomas did not tell anyone about the great favor until just before his death. He then declared that never again was he tempted by the least shadow of impurity. God thus rewarded his heroic battle. At last the relatives saw they might as well let Thomas go. Although they did not want to admit they were beaten, they did not try to prevent his escape. He was let down from the tower in a basket and went to the Dominican monastery where the monks received him with great joy. The young man was sent to Cologne. Here he became a pupil of the famous Dominican teacher, St. Albert the Great. Thomas, being very humble, seldom spoke during class. On account of his silence, and also because he was so tall and stout, other pupils nicknamed him the Dumb Ox of Sicily. One of the young men took pity on Thomas and offered to teach him. This offer the saint accepted with humility and thanks, but one day the teacher made a mistake. For the sake of truth, Thomas corrected him and explained the lesson very clearly. The teacher was astonished. He then begged Thomas to be the teacher. The saint agreed, but only when the young man promised to keep the agreement a secret. 
Shortly after this, St. Albert found a paper on which Thomas had written a clear answer to a very difficult question. So, too, was astonished to learn that the young man had such a bright mind. The next day he asked Thomas to stand up before all the pupils. St. Albert asked him question after question. All the young men were greatly astonished when they heard the answers. We have called Thomas the dumb ox, exclaimed St. Albert, but he is an ox whose bellowing will one day be heard around the world. This praise did not change St. Thomas at all. He was just as humble and kind as before. All his companions loved him very much because of this. From Cologne, St. Albert and Thomas walked more than 250 miles to the University of Paris. Here the saint met a young Franciscan monk named Bonaventure. They became very dear friends. Both of them received the Bachelor of Theology degree in 1248. Both of them became saints, and both are doctors of the church. St. Thomas is called the Angelic Doctor, and St. Bonaventure the Seraphic Doctor. At Cologne, Thomas began to teach. He was a great success in the classroom. His pupils used to say they learned more from him in a few months than they did in several years from other teachers. After teaching for a while, he was ordained priest. He said Mass with such great devotion that he often shed tears. Those who assisted him at Mass always felt themselves moved to greater love for God. After his own Mass, he often served another in thanksgiving. He received grace to preach well. During Holy Week in 1267, he preached in St. Peter's at Rome. He moved the people to tears with his sermon on the Passion of Our Lord. On the following Easter Sunday, he spoke about the resurrection, and the audience was filled with greatest joy. As he was coming down from the pulpit that day, a poor woman who touched the hem of his garment was instantly cured of a disease that had troubled her for years. St. Thomas wrote a great deal about our Lord in the Blessed Eucharist. One day Jesus appeared to him and said, Thomas, thou hast written well concerning the sacrament of my holy body. Another time the Blessed Virgin appeared to him and told him how pleasing his writings were to her divine Son. At the request of St. Thomas, the Pope extended the Feast of Corpus Christi to the whole church. The two hymns, O Salutaris and Tantum Ergo, now sung at benediction of the Blessed Sacrament, are taken from the office of the Feast of Written by St. Thomas. The saint also wrote beautiful prayers to be said before and after Holy Communion. Thomas was always humble. When the Pope asked him to be Archbishop of Naples, he respectfully asked the Holy Father to let him remain a simple Dominican monk. He was always charitable, never did he refuse anyone who came for help. He was kind, gentle, and simple in his ways. He was dearly loved by all his companions, and when they saw him about to leave them, their sorrow was very great. On the Feast of St. Nicholas, December 6, 1273, he had a vision during Mass. He said afterward to Brother Reginald, The end of my labors is come. All that I have written appears to me as so much straw, after the things that have been revealed to me. I hope in the mercy of God that the end of my life 
may soon follow the end of my labors. Soon afterward, the Pope asked him to attend an important council to be held at Lyons. Thomas was not well at the time, but in obedience to the Holy Father, he set out on the journey. On the way, he became very ill and went to the nearest monastery. Here he was sick for about a month, and during that time made a very holy preparation for death. When the Blessed Sacrament was to be brought to him for the last time, he asked to be laid on ashes on the floor. Just before receiving our Lord, he exclaimed, Thou, O Christ, art the King of glory. Thou art the everlasting Son of the Father. The next day, March seventh, 1274, he received unction and shortly afterward passed peacefully to his reward. He was about forty-eight years old at that time. After his death, one of his companions saw a vision of St. Thomas enjoying in heaven the fruit of the labors he performed for God. Many miracles were granted through his intercession. He was canonized by Pope John the twenty-second in 1323, and his feast is celebrated each year on March 7th. His body lies in the church of St. Serene in Toulouse, France. St. Gregory the Great, 540-604, Pope and Doctor of the Church, Feast, March 12th. At the supper table one evening, Mrs. Martin said, Aunt Lucy sent a silver cup for the baby. Good for Aunt Lucy, exclaimed Mr. Martin. I wonder if she knows we called him Gregory. Why, Daddy? asked Mary and Jimmy both at the same time. Because St. Gregory the Great had a silver cup, the father replied, and besides, he made good use of it. I hope our Gregory will follow his example. What did he do with it? asked Jimmy, as he buttered a piece of bread. Tell us about it, Daddy. He gave it to a beggar, answered Mr. Martin. But perhaps I had better tell you first who St. Gregory was. The story of his life is very interesting. Yes, Daddy, let us hear about him, said Mary. Mr. Martin finished his coffee. In the city of Rome, he began, St. Gregory was born fourteen centuries ago. We have to go back to 540 for the year of his birth. He was the son of a wealthy Roman senator. His mother was... St. Sylvia, whose feast day is kept on the 3rd of November. Two of his aunts were also saints. You can imagine how well he was brought up. His father sent him to the best teachers. At an early age, the little boy learned how important it is to serve God. Although he made rapid progress in his studies and became a great scholar, he was always careful to be humble and obedient. After some years, Gregory was made prefect of Rome. The studies of his high position required him to wear rich and beautiful robes of office and to live in a splendid palace. Whenever he went through the streets, the people admired his good looks, his jewels, and his fine garments. But Gregory did not allow these things to turn his head. He knew that honors and wealth do not last forever. He served in this position for one year. Then the people were surprised to hear that he had sold all his goods. He astonished them still more when he used the money to build six monasteries in Sicily. Then they learned he had built a monastery on the 
Coleon Hill in Rome and had gone to live in it as a monk. The people of Rome had seen him go through the streets dressed in beautiful robes of a prefect. Now they saw him in poor garb of a monk. They saw him helping the sick and bringing relief to the needy. Those who suffered found him a real friend. One day a beggar came to Gregory's cell. The monk said to him, I have no gold, but here is my mother's silver cup. In Christ's name, take it and live. Years afterward, the beggar came back again, and holding up the silver cup said, Do you remember your gift of long ago? Gregory was astonished, for he knew the cup. The stranger knew, went on, Your prayers and charity are like sweet flowers that bloom in paradise. With these words, the beggar vanished. Then Gregory knew he had seen the Lord. The Pope asked him to go to Constantinople on important business. He spent seven years there and learned much about the East that was to be useful later on. When he returned, he was made head of his monastery on the Salone Hill. He continued his charities and to the people of Rome. On one of his frequent visits to the city, he saw some slave children being offered for sale near the Roman Forum. He was attracted by the good looks of the children and asked who they were. On being told they were angels from England, the saint replied, Not angels, but angels shall they be. The true faith must be brought to these people. Obtaining permission from the Pope, he set out on a mission to England. The sorrow of the Romans at his departure was so great that they asked the Pope to recall him. Messengers were sent, and after a time they overtook Gregory and ordered him to return. In the year 590, Pope Pelagius and thousands of Romans were carried off by the plague. Gregory asked the Pope to form a large procession and by public prayer beg of God for the end of this disease. It is said that when the procession reached Hadrian's tomb, an angel appeared and standing upon the tomb, sheathed his sword at the sign that the scourge was over. Castle San Angelo in Rome now marks a spot where the miracle is said to have taken place. Gregory himself was then elected Pope. He did not wish for the high office, but was compelled to accept it. One of his first acts was to send St. Augustine and a company of monks to England in 597. But he also sent missionaries to France, Spain, Sardinia, and Africa. He caused the faith to be preached all over Western Europe. Most people in this country today owe much to this great Pope because he sent missionaries to the land from which their ancestors came. He gave the world the beautiful church music called Gregorian chant. He started a school at Rome to which many nations sent their singers. That's the music Sister Basil is teaching us now, exclaimed Mary. We can sing the Credo and the Gloria in Gregorian chant. Perhaps you will sing part of the Gloria for us when I finish the story, replied Mr. Martin. The Holy Father wishes people to sing Gregorian chant at Mass and Vespers. It is the most beautiful of all music for the worship of God. I am glad you are learning it, Mary. St. Gregory was not only a missionary and a musician, he was a writer as well. 
He wrote many wonderful books. Because of the good teachings in them, he is called Doctor of the Church. In spite of his great learning, he always remained humble. In his letters, he signed himself Servant of the Servants of God, a title all the popes since in his day have used. He was kind to all men. When many people were cruel to the Jews, St. Gregory protected them. When people needed food, he sent it. He divided the city of Rome into districts, and so that no poor person would be left hungry, he appointed an officer to look after each district. The Pope used his revenues to buy corn, wine, cheese, meat, fish, and oil to feed those in need. Some men even accused him of spending too much money for this purpose. He himself fed twelve people every day from his own table. Here he waited on them himself. In this he followed the example of our Lord, who waited on his twelve apostles at the Last Supper. This great saint who did so much for the church, who extended it into new countries, who made wise laws to govern it, and who sacrificed himself for others, did all this work in spite of poor health. The last days of his life were scarcely ever free from pain, yet he labored on. In the year 604, God granted him the end of his sufferings and summoned him to everlasting happiness. Many miracles followed his death, a sign that God was well pleased with his servant of the servants.